morning. Yeah, the scripture today is uh, from Psalm 119, uh, 129 through 136. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light, gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the opposition of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Praise God. Let's pray as we go to the Word of God this morning. Our Father in Heaven, we are here before You. We want to acknowledge You in our midst and we ask that Your Spirit would work in our hearts right now. As the psalmist prayed, we want to ask that You would open our eyes to the wonders of Your law. May it be beautiful. May we love it and delight in it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are going to continue the second half of the Ten Commandments that takes the greatest commandment to love God and then applies it. And Jesus says the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. And this morning, I want to relate the two of those together. The Apostle John says in 1 John Chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this morning... I want to demonstrate, John very clearly says those two things are related. You cannot say, oh, I've got a great relationship with the Lord, and then not love your brother or your sister who is also made in the image of God. So I want to do two things this morning. My outline is I'm just taking the six commandments that we have left, and for each of them, I want to briefly describe how breaking these commandments is a sin against God. Because we are made in His image. If you think about it, it's almost surprising that six of the Ten Commandments God gives do not apply directly to Him, but they apply horizontally to our brothers and sisters, to our fellow image bearers. And you might think, God is laying down His law. He's on Mount Sinai. He's revealing His holiness, His awesome power. You would think that everything He says is directed towards Him. But what I want to argue today is that it actually is. Because what John says is you cannot love God and fail to love your brother or your sister. And so as we go through each of these six commandments, my first, my first goal and objective is to describe how breaking them is a sin against God because 
we are made in his image. So I'm going to be talking a lot about what it means to be made in the image of God. And let me begin that right now. When we, and, and for those of you who, who remember when you were first dating, or maybe you're, you're in the age where romance is possible and love is in the air, you remember you might collect pictures or images of the people you love. And I, I don't know if they still do, but if you, if you still put pictures inside your locker, we're, we're so addicted to digital media, almost nobody prints anything anymore, but you used to put a picture of your girlfriend in your locker. And you could look at it and you'd think, oh, she's so beautiful, I love her, she loves me, this is great. When that relationship ends, what is the first thing you do to that picture? You tear it down. If, if, you're, if you're an impatient person, you'll tear it up immediately. If you have a little bit more of a burning hatred in your heart, you will take a match to a pile of pictures that you have collected together. You destroy the image because you no longer love the person it represents. Think the same way about some of our national monuments. You know, we respect Abraham Lincoln because of his singular devotion to do what was right at a time when it was incredibly costly. It was incredibly unpopular to lead the country to war for the cause of emancipation. And today, we recognize his courage, his resolve, and his amazing, humble leadership. One of the most amazing things I think he said is, he told Northerners, he said, do not think that you are better because you recognize what's right and wrong. If you had been born in the South, you would be defending slavery. His humility in recognizing the human heart was so incredible. And his commitment to doing what was right in leading our nation to war had such incredible courage. He demonstrated such great leadership that we commemorate that man in the Lincoln Memorial. Now think for a second. If you visit the Lincoln Memorial and you were to take a sledgehammer and smash his head, no one would say, ah, you know, it's, it's just a statue. It's not a big deal. It's fine. No one would say that. Because it's so much more than a statue. It represents his courage. It represents his commitment to do what was right when it was costly. It represents his leadership in a time when we desperately needed leadership. And so defacing the image defaces his legacy. And we would hate to see that. Scripture teaches very clearly, Genesis chapter 1, all of us, are made in the image of God. Human beings uniquely bear the image of God. So in the last six commandments, as God tells us how to love Him by loving our neighbors, we are loving God by respecting the image of Himself that He has made that each of us reflect. And so as I go through each of the six, the first thing I'm going to do, briefly meditate on how each of the six commandments reflects on the image we bear and ultimately reflects on whether or not we truly love the Lord. Second, I want to show how Jesus explained each of these commands in the Sermon on the Mount because 
It's easy to think, you know, the, the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie, you shall not covet. It's easy to look at those, and I skipped honor your father and mother. It's easy to look at those and say, okay, I can do that. I'm not going to kill anybody. Definitely not going to steal, I'm going to thief. And it's easy to think that because you haven't done the external act, that you are innocent. And Jesus says, no, your heart is what matters. And if you think that just because you haven't actually done the deed, but it's in your heart, you're innocent, you are wrong. And Jesus very clearly, several times in Matthew 5-7, through says, if this sin is in your heart, you are in danger of the fires of hell. He makes it incredibly clear that sin has eternal consequences, and even people who think that they are believers who know the Lord need to examine themselves and examine their hearts to see if they truly love Him. And one of the ways, if you know if you love God, and 1 John says this too, if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And John says the only way that we will know if we love them is if we love God and keep His commandments. So let's look today at the commandments of Scripture. We'll be flipping back and forth between Exodus chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 5 through 7 with one or two other references. But those are going to be my two primary places today. And it would probably be worth it to mark Matthew 5 through 7 so that you can find it quickly and easily as we turn back and forth. My prayer is that God would help each of us to forsake sin and to cling to Jesus in faith and to learn to walk in obedience. So look with me today, beginning at Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. And first off, we're going to see verse 12, the command to love your parents. Love your parents. That's my first point for today. Verse 12 reads this way. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. If you and I are in the image of God, it means that what we do to each other says everything about what we think of God. Just as the way that we honor or dishonor the Lincoln Memorial says what we think about Abraham Lincoln or the way we love a picture of someone, or the way we burn a picture of someone, says everything about the way we think about that person. Part of bearing God's image, and this is only part of it, because not everyone is able to be a parent, but part of bearing God's image is bringing other little image bearers into the world. And our children bear our image. Uh, some of you have never seen me without a beard. I have a very prominent dent in my chin. And if you look at all of my kids, each of them have a lesser dent. They look like their daddy and their mama, both. Our image is shown in our children, both in our physical resemblance and, for better or for worse, their conduct. And if you dishonor your parents who brought you into the world, you are dishonoring the God who brought us all into the world. One of the first and most basic ways that God instructs us 
to love our neighbors as ourselves is to love our parents who gave us life and to recognize the debt that we owe them for caring for us as God has given all of us life and cared for all of us. Kids and, and, and young adults, let me say to you very clearly, you may break this commandment through disobedience. There are times when your father or your mother will ask you to do something and you will not want to do it. And when you disobey, you break this commandment of God. And when you break this commandment of God, you are saying to God, I do not love you and I do not care about you and I do not love my parents and I do not care about my parents. Disobedience is a serious sin. For those of us who are are, are a little bit older, there comes a time when your parents do not command you to do things in the same way that they do when you're young. And yet it is still possible to dishonor your parents. Very often, older people do this through neglecting their parents. Whether they do not provide for them when they start to struggle a little bit financially as seniors, or whether they are not generous with the time that they spend with their parents. There is no expiration date on this commandment. When you're young, it's tempting to think as soon as you're an adult and you've reached that age that you can leave and now you're no longer obligated, but God does not say that. So I've described a little bit about how the image determines why this is right and good and how it relates to loving God. Go to Matthew 15. This is one of the only references that's outside of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 15 makes this so clear that there's no expiration date on honoring your father and mother that you love God by loving your parents. It's Matthew chapter 15. Look with me at verses 3 through 9. Jesus is responding to a criticism, an attack by the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, you've broken the commandment of God. And Jesus answers them this way. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And he calls them hypocrites. Says this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is because they failed to take care of their own parents who were in financial need. There's no expiration date on that. The heart issue is, will you honor God by honoring your parents? Secondly, not only do you have an obligation to your parents that should be obvious to everyone. Scriptures teach very plainly, you shall not murder. It's Exodus 20 verse 13. And so my second point for today is, love your enemies. Love your enemies. In fact, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. First, how does, how does image relate to this? If you murder... You are in a very violent and graphic way defacing the image of God. And God is the one who has authority over life and death. So not only do you deface His image, 
you also assume his sovereign role in determining when life comes to an end. And I believe that that is why both abortion and assisted suicide are so deeply wrong. Not only do you destroy someone made in God's image, but you also assume the place of God in determining when life will end. Let me say very clearly, this is not translated, you shall not kill. That's the older King James translation. There is a difference between killing and murdering. It does not mean the same thing. So let me explain why. Murder is killing without the authority of God. Murder is killing with wrongful intent. There are two ways that it is proper and right at times to kill another human being. The first is soldiers who are fighting a just war have the right to kill the enemy. They are not breaking the commandment, you shall not murder. Paul says in Romans 14 very clearly that the government bears the sword and has a right and a responsibility to lead just wars. In that context, that actually points to the second possibility of a a right kind of killing. Because Paul is arguing that when you violate the laws of your country, you run the risk of capital punishment, of the government taking your life for your crime. And so police officers, in a moment of service, protecting the citizenry, sometimes take life. That is not murder. And governments still sometimes practice the death penalty for those who have committed crimes that we believe are worthy of death. Let me pause for a second. I didn't actually, I didn't actually uh, say anything about this verse, but the, the commandment to honor your father and mother has the pain of death to it. There is a real possibility that if your son or daughter rebels to such a point that they have grievously sinned against their parents. The parents actually had the right in the Old Testament to take them before the priest and the community would stone them. That kind of rebellion was that serious. Now, I am not advocating that. That is not how Christians raise their kids. But I am saying that is how seriously God took it. And as we talk about the death penalty, we might think, you know, these very crazy extreme cases. But God said there were instances in the Old Testament where rebellion against parents was punishable by death. His standards are very high. And the punishments that he expects us to mete out in the terms of our civil uh, justice system are very high. And so I want to say that both soldiers in war, police officers, rightly exercising their authority, will sometimes kill, and that killing is not murder. Now let me say, this is hugely important, especially in a country that is divided over how our police treat minorities. Let me say this, it is possible to be a police officer and a soldier and to wrongly kill someone. The badge and the uniform do not make it so that you are immune from the command of God. There are people who have wrongly abused their authority. There are unjust governments. I am not saying that God gives those people a right to ignore this commandment, but I am saying there is a right way to exercise that divine authority and we need to recognize that and acknowledge that. You might also mention, since I have said that there is a right kind of authority to exercise that that discretion to sometimes kill, God has entrusted the civil authorities with the enforcement of his rules and laws. 
And so their authority comes from God, and they do not decide arbitrarily to kill people, but they kill those who are breaking the laws in incredibly grievous ways. I mentioned euthanasia a minute ago. You might be tempted to say, doesn't a physician have the wisdom to know when someone is medically hopeless, and so they exercise a mercy killing? Doesn't a physician have the authority to take life at times? And I believe the biblical answer is absolutely not. When God gives governments the authority to enforce the law with lethal force, either through soldiers or through the judicial system, their function very clearly is to uphold moral law. The person who is sick, who may never recover, who may be in great pain, has not broken a civil law. There is no clear standard for saying this person deserves to die now. A physician is not upholding the law. He is taking the role of God and determining when life is so bad that a person should die out of compassion and mercy. And no human has the right to make that call for two reasons. First, that is an unwise and short-sighted view of the way that God uses suffering. God uses suffering in our lives very often to call us to Himself. If you cut that short, you are stopping what God has ordained. Many families can testify to the power of a loved one's suffering within their family, ultimately to heal the family. There is value in what God calls us to. When when David describes in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Can you imagine for a moment if someone had said, He's really suffering. Why don't we in compassion and mercy just kill him? He never would have experienced the presence of God or been able to testify to how God was with him in that valley. So first, the reason I believe euthanasia is wrong is it takes an unwise and short-sighted view of the way that God uses suffering Secondly, we believe that our God can heal. And so if you kill someone because you believe this is hopeless, you are saying, either I don't think God is able, or I don't trust that he's willing to heal. And instead, you are removing all possibility of that. And so I believe both of those are very important. And, and let, me, let me add a third way that I believe that this applies that I think might make me sound like a lunatic. We need to be very, very careful in our recreation and entertainment, what we consume in terms of violent movies and what we consume in terms of violent video games. And here is why. Listen, I believe there is a place for films that portray some violence. I'm not opposed to them. Some some violent films are very, very good. So I'm not saying... Don't watch it if it's violent. But here's the key difference. And this is why I think video games in particular are are hugely damaging to the way that we treat life. A soldier or a police officer, and I would would love it if, if my sons grew up and had the courage and the wisdom to know how to use deadly force. They are trained to know And good mature people are trained to know right from wrong and to recognize dangerous situations. The wisdom that goes with the responsibility is incredibly important in having the decision to kill or not to kill. 
There is not a video game in the world that teaches you wisdom and discretion or the sacredness of life. I believe there is a time when killing is appropriate and we should not be afraid of it, but we should humbly and fearfully, recognizing the sacred command of God, use the authority that He gives us. But a casual, sitting on a couch, eating Doritos, drinking Mountain Dew, murdering of people on the screen, does not give you that sacred wisdom and discretion. I mentioned in Sunday school, I, I had a prof, he was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. He served in Vietnam. He sent people into battle. His friends died. He was covered with their blood. He had a sacred honor and duty to lead people into life and death situations. And video games know nothing about honor or duty. So I want to say very cautiously and very carefully, I do not believe it's healthy to take life in a recreational setting. And if you think that you can say, well, it's not real, then let me call you to recognize what Jesus says about anger. Jesus takes this to a heart level. Let me read what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. Recognizing that what I've just said makes it, it may seem crazy, but notice what Jesus says about your heart attitude and how you look at other people. So go with me to Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is going to talk about this very commandment. He says, starting in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And that's true. The judgment for breaking this commandment in the Old Testament was death. But Jesus says, But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus takes both the command and the punishment to an incredibly high level. He not only says that the command includes your heart attitude towards your brothers and sisters, but that the punishment is not just the termination of life, but it is an eternity in hell. He takes killing incredibly seriously, and he says it happens in your heart when you are angry and when you continue in anger. Let me say, if you leave anger in your heart today, you are in danger of hell. Jesus' words are incredibly strong, and I am tempted immediately upon reading them to offer you grace so that we don't fear. But I cannot diminish what he said. If you are an angry person, you are in danger of going to hell because unresolved anger means you do not love people made in the image of God, and if you do not love people made in God's image, you cannot love God. Now, I used a word that is really critical there. I said unresolved anger. I believe anger in itself is not a sin. The Bible says be angry and sin not. That is possible. But it is not for us to remain angry. Jesus taught us to trust God with the final judgment of people who sin against us. And He also taught us to lovingly confront people so that we can make peace. There is no place for unresolved anger within a marriage. There is no place for unresolved anger within a family. There is no place for unresolved anger 
within the church. In fact, let me add this. Not only did God make us in His image, the Scripture teaches that God demonstrated His love for sinners, not people who were good, for sinners, in that He sent Christ to die for us. He loves all of us so much that He sent His Son to die as a sacrifice for our sins while we were in our sins. And if God loved all of us so much when he was righteously angry at our sin that he sent his son to die for us, who am I to remain angry against someone else for whom Christ died? If God forgave me, how can I remain in anger with someone else? And Jesus shows this very clearly and very bluntly in Matthew chapter 18 with the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's, it's long and I've got a lot of scripture in this message, so I don't want to read the whole thing. But let me summarize it for you. There's a man who owes a great debt. He's a servant and his master forgives him that debt. It's an unpayable amount. And out of mercy, the master says, I forgive you, you're free to go. And then he goes and finds someone who owes him money. And that man who had just been forgiven refuses to extend forgiveness to someone else. And Jesus very bluntly used this to say, if you do not forgive, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. That's why bickering in the church is such a dangerous thing. It means we who claim to be forgiven by God, we've been forgiven a huge debt, we are struggling to extend that forgiveness to other things, to, to other people. And we are demonstrating that we've never really received the forgiveness of God for ourselves. God says, if you do not forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. So let me ask you today, are you allowing anger to simmer in your heart? Or do you look at life and treat it casually? Do you, in your recreation and entertainment, think... This isn't a big deal because it's not real. Well, Jesus says very clearly, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. What matters is your heart. If you look at someone made in the image of God and you think it's okay to casually kill them and that's even fun, you are not recognizing how sacred human life is because we bear the image of God. Killing should never, ever be fun. It is a grave responsibility. Jesus says, If you have murder in your heart, regardless of what your actions have done, you are breaking the sixth commandment. Thirdly today, back in Exodus chapter 20, God says very clearly, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And so my third point today is, love your spouse. Love your spouse. If you commit adultery, You are being unfaithful to someone who is made in God's image. And you say very clearly with your actions that you are unfaithful to God Himself. And the fact that we believe that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they live in an eternal kind of love. It means that the love that a husband and a wife have when they take a covenant that is a lifelong promise to never be broken, when a husband and a wife break that covenant, 
they are implying that the God who is love might break his loving covenant. And so there might be a time when the father says to Jesus, you know, I just don't feel in love with you today. That would never happen. And that's why the command to love your spouse, to not commit adultery, is so sacred. Because we reflect the character of God in our marriage. Let me add this. Some of you are single. Some of you are not even of marriage age yet. So you might think, well, this only applies to married people. That's not true. Look with me at Matthew 5, 27 through 30. And Jesus very clearly says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. This is verse 28 of Matthew 5. But I say to you that everyone, married, single, does not matter. Everyone, man, woman, does not matter. Who looks at a woman, and I would add in our context, or a man, with lust intent in his heart, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this is how serious Jesus says that offense is. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Again, he has upped the command is a heart issue, not just something that's physical. And he has upped the penalty from being a termination of life, the death penalty was applicable for adultery. Now he says the penalty is an eternity in hell. This is incredibly serious. This is a problem for both men and women. This is why pornography is so evil, because it makes it so easy to commit adultery in your heart. Parents, let me say, you have got to protect your kids from pornography. You've got to make sure that they do not have access to it and that as they raise up, as you raise them, as they grow, as they have the ability to go find it apart from you, you've got to teach them how deeply wrong it is. So in their hearts, they don't desire it and they don't desire to go looking. It is enormously tempting and it is incredibly easy. Jesus says, if you commit adultery in your heart, you are in danger hell. Let me say this. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I don't want to diminish the grace that God makes available to us. But the danger is that we would claim grace and continue in sin. If you are content to live in sin, do not claim the blood of Jesus for yourself. You are abusing the grace of God. Scripture says very clearly in Hebrews, you will fall under condemnation. Your conduct shows whether or not you have trusted the grace of God. And if you believe that it's perfectly okay to divorce a spouse and then go marry someone else just because you want to, and you think, okay, well, I'm not committing adultery because my divorce has been finalized. Jesus warns very clearly that you are in danger of committing adultery. And there is a real possibility that your heart has desired communion with another person more than communion with God. That your hope and your faith is actually in being fulfilled by a human spouse rather than God Himself. 
And I believe that we are in huge danger. Our culture wants to believe love wins. We celebrate that. We think that the desires of your heart matter more than anything else. And Jesus warns very clearly, it's completely possible to desire wrongfully in your heart and to go to hell because of the love that won in your heart. Fourthly, Scriptures teach us to love generously. Go back to Exodus 20 with me. Exodus chapter 20 says this. You shall not steal. Four words, incredibly simple. And I believe in this command is not only the negative command, you shall not steal, but the positive command that you should love generously. So forth today, love generously. If you steal, you are taking from someone made in God's image and you are preventing them from functioning as an image bearer. Now that's a horrible abstract statement that doesn't make any sense. So let me try to to, to illustrate it this way. One of Chris's great gifts is leading worship with music. Now imagine for a second, the acoustic guitar that he plays is a Martin. It is a beautiful instrument, and I like it. If I steal his guitar, I will have prevented his service in ministry. When I take what is not mine from a fellow image bearer, I mar and deface the image of God in that person. They are not able to reflect the image of God as they should with the possessions that they have from the gift of God. So let me be clear, when you steal from someone, you are defacing the image of God. And there are many ways that we steal. It's not just material possessions. You can steal someone's time. You can be disrespectful of what God has called them to do and demand their attention for yourself in an unhealthy way. And not only that, as I read through Matthew 5-7, through Jesus never directly addresses stealing. Like all the other commandments, He raises the bar and addresses where your heart is at and whether or not you are actually generous. Jesus has a radical take on the heart issue. He begins chapter 6 of Matthew 5-7, through this great sermon, by talking about the importance of giving generously to the needy secretly. So that no one knows. You don't do it for a tax deduction. You do it because it's the right thing to do. To give to someone else who is in the image of God. Who is struggling to reflect that image because of their poverty. And so by your gift, you are helping build them up. And helping them fulfill their sacred calling to reflect the image of God. Jesus says, do that. Give it secretly. Be careful that you don't give publicly for your own glory. He starts talking about generosity there. He not only says that we should be generous with the needy, he talks about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. So the generosity extends and includes people that you don't love and don't care about. People that you don't trust. And then, this is where it becomes incredibly hard. He warns about our desire to accumulate material possessions. Look at Matthew 6, and this is the passage I want to read, verses 19 to 24 with me. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And now skip down to verse 24 with me. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, can, you cannot serve God and money. Jesus not only condemns a kind of selfishness that does not give, he commands us to give to the needy. He also warns just against having all of your treasures here on earth. And as I thought about this, do you want to know what one of the best theft deterrents is? We want to protect our stuff, you know it, we think about how, how am I going to make sure nobody breaks in and steals my stuff. Do you know what the best deterrence to theft is? If you just don't bother having anything worth stealing, you'll be fine. You never have to worry about it. And although I'm somewhat kidding, the point is very serious. Where is your heart? Is your heart in making your home on earth very comfortable and very beautiful and very spacious? When you entertain people, do you partially want them to be impressed at your ability to entertain? Can you serve them in humility? And when you invite people over, do you invite people that you are already friends with or that you like? Or do you invite people that need your love, that are hard to love? Let me mention you should do both because I've been inviting a lot of people to my house. So I don't want you to think... That I only invite people who are hard to love. <laughs> Jesus says very clearly. We are to be generous with everyone. The danger of collecting things on here. Is that your heart will not be on God the good giver of gifts. Your heart will be on your material possessions. And he warns you cannot serve God and money. And if you have lived a life of serving money there is a real chance that you will not see God when you die. Fifthly, we are commanded to love honestly. And in Exodus 20, it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So let me describe in a New Testament way. And I, I believe this is not a contradiction. This is Jesus just explaining the heart that always should have been with this commandment. It says to love honestly. If you lie, you are destroying fellowship between two image bearers. Can you imagine for a second if the father lied to the son? That would never happen. I, I'm almost uncomfortable even saying it out loud because it's so deeply wrong. But if you lie to someone who is made in God's image, you have said, I have no problem lying to God. I can see my fellow man. I can't see God. I might think wrongly. I might think and be tempted to think maybe God doesn't know. That's not true. But I can see my fellow man. He reflects the image of God. And if I, have, if I have no problem lying to him, I believe the scriptures teach very clearly I have obviously no problem lying to God because I act as if he doesn't know. We cannot love each other if we aren't honest. And like adultery, lying is a direct assault on our ability to reflect God's image. So look at me at Matthew 5, 36, 37. This actually directly applies to the same commandment because the, the original commandment is talking really in a context of court. But Jesus, again, takes it outside of that context. And he says this. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, 
Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head. Now, stop for just a second. Everything he's listed to that point has a sacred connection, so it's kind of holy. You would think, okay, I get it. I'm not supposed to use holy things to kind of bolster my honesty. But then in this verse, he says, do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. This goes outside of a, of a context of swearing on the Bible and goes into everyday life and says, you don't even have a right to take an oath based on your own head. Let what you say simply be yes or no, and anything more than this comes from evil. Just be honest. I think there are a few people that sometimes struggle with pathological lying. And there are a few people that are sometimes tempted to lie to protect themselves in big ways for different reasons. But let me say this. I think one of the biggest ways that we lie to each other at church is when we insist that we're just, we're fine all the time. Somebody says, how are you doing? You say, I'm fine. That lie might seem incredibly small, but you know what it does? It makes it impossible for us to love each other. And I'm not saying I want to hear a lifelong history of sorrows and guilt, but I do want to know, how are you? Part of why we want to do a short little greeting time in this service is we want to give people an opportunity to really fellowship with each other, to really love each other. And so if all we do in this greeting time is just say, oh, hi, happy to see you, you know, hugs, that's not real fellowship. Be honest with each other. If you tell me you're fine when you're not, I never will know how to pray for you. And if God has blessed you and you're happy, I don't know how to praise God with you. And so let me encourage you as a church in a very pointed way, we need to be honest with each other. We need to tell each other the truth continually. Finally, sixth, I've entitled this point, Love Thankfully. The command is actually, do not covet. And I want to go back to Exodus and, and read the entire verse, because this is where God makes it clear that even back in Exodus, this has always been about where your heart is. So God says, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. If you covet, and again, this is a heart sin. This is not, I've gone and taken or stolen something. This is just wrongfully desiring something that God has not given you. If you covet, you are demonstrating that you are not comfortable in the way that God has made you to reflect his image. You are accusing him of making a mistake when he made you, and you are desiring what he gave someone else. As the body of Christ, God has given each of us unique gifts. God has given me a gift to preach, which I am still developing and still growing in. If you think that's the only way that someone can serve God, and God has not given you that gift, you are coveting a spiritual gift, and you will not serve him with the gift that you did receive. And in the same way, if your heart is full of greed for someone else's possessions, it means you are not 
thankful for the possessions that God did give you. And if I covet, which is an ungodly wanting or an obsessive desire, if I covet, I will not faithfully use what he's given me. And God made me so that I would bear his image. And when I am greedy or showing that I need something that I don't have, I am displaying to the world that I think God is greedy and needy and and needs things that he does not have. My image, when it is broken and marred, says untrue things about God. And that's, Jesus says it this way in in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. This is how we combat that sinful desire. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Anxiety is something that says, I don't think God is actually really in control. He says, don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Those are two of our most basic needs. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about those two things that you need to survive. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And I believe that anxiety is directly speaking to the sin of coveting. For the the Gentiles or the unbelievers seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But here's what you do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now notice, I titled this point, Love Thankfully. But Jesus doesn't say that thankfulness in itself is the positive way to obey this. You know what he says? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I believe that the opposite of being covetous or being anxious is positively serving the Lord with an attitude of trust. Seeking the kingdom, spreading the good news of Jesus, learning how to live God's righteousness, that restores God's image in us. And that's why this is the opposite of coveting. When we serve Him the way He has made us, we show the world what He is like through our obedience. And we know how to obey through the law that He has revealed to us. And so by obeying that law, we constantly testify that God is good. And that our Savior died for all of the ways that we have failed. And He is precious and beautiful. And that testimony says, with a life that's consistent with the gospel, louder than any words could say, I believe in Jesus Christ, who died for me and rose from the dead. We, we have looked at all ten commandments now. We have seen how they reveal God's character. We have seen through the teachings of Jesus the high calling of heart obedience. We have seen how all of them are directed towards loving God. And part of loving God is loving the people made in His image. So let me ask you as we close, how are you doing? 
the most frightening parts of the Sermon on the Mount and of the entire Bible are how often Jesus makes these commandments an issue of heaven or hell. He makes it so clear that if our hearts are slaves to lust or anger or money, we will never see God. That is an uncomfortable and fearful thing. So let me ask you, have you been set free from your sins? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? These last six commandments are directed outwards towards our fellow image bearers. These are not just you and God issues. You cannot say, I'm fine with God, so don't worry about anything else. The reality is, if you're not fine with your fellow Christians in the church, you are not fine with God. If you have sinned against a brother or a sister in the church, you need to apologize. And if you have received an apology, you need to forgive. So as I close, and I've asked asked you all to pray that I would go short. I know this is super long. Let me read you 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul describes to a church what it means to really love. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and read with me what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 13.4 Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Can you imagine how different our meetings would be if we did not insist on our own way? It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. Imagine the healing that would come if we believed our spouses and our fellow Christians when they said, I'm sorry. But so often we shut them out because we just don't believe they mean it. Love believes all things and it hopes all things and it endures all things. And Paul says, by the grace of God, because God is love, love never ends. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this kind of obedience is impossible. And yet by the miracle of life in Christ, we believe that you will make us so that we perfectly reflect the image of Jesus. And God, I ask you to do that now. Convict our hearts of ways that we have sinned. Help us to repent and to forsake them. Teach us to walk in the joy of obedience and in the love of God. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Hey, Pastor, I think what I want to do here, I want to sing this song, but I want to have you give the benediction first and dismissal, and then if you'd like to continue to worship us, we're going to sing this song. Absolutely. So 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says this, and this has been a heavy and a hard sermon. I think I've probably offended everyone in the church, and I'm not sorry about that. I believe it's the Word of God. Let me give you this. 1 John 2, 1-2 through two says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. He is the appeasing sacrifice. He is the way we have peace with God and with each other. He is the propitiation for our sins. So if you are discouraged today, hope in the precious blood of Jesus and in the power of God that raised him from the dead. Go in peace.